I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Americans are now facing a common enemy, COVID-19. I want to thank all Americans for pulling together, for coming together. It's called the invisible enemy, and that's what it is. It's an invisible enemy. The U.S. Federal Reserve has announced it will buy hundreds of billions of dollars in bonds and will lend directly to businesses to try to calm the markets. Millions of Americans are now having to stay at home to slow the spread of coronavirus. Despite the ensuing turmoil, politicians from both parties have been accused of political point scoring. President Trump has been widely criticized for using an Oval Office address to refer to a foreign virus. The country now has a choice whether to unite against COVID-19 or revert to the partisan squabbling that's hallmarked the last few years. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, why is America polarized? My guest today tackles this question head-on in his latest book, Why We're Polarized. Ezra Klein is a self-proclaimed policy nerd who created the influential Wonk blog. He jumped ship from the Washington Post to co-found Vox Media. And in his book, Klein argues that polarization is a feature, not a bug, of the American political system, dividing the country with disastrous results. So what might be done about it in these divided times? Ezra Klein, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you for having me. To start with, the world is facing polarisation. It's a polarisation now of a different kind between those with and without COVID-19. What impact do you think those dividing lines are having on America? So it's a couple things here. I always want to be careful about applying the kind of term of polarization to too many different aspects of life. I wouldn't say, for instance, that people who do and don't have it are, are polarized. What I do think we're seeing in America already, though, is that at least at the outset of this epidemic, there has been a pretty big difference between how Republicans and Democrats are understanding it because of what their different political leaders and media sources are telling them. So as of a couple of days ago, we saw a poll that said something like 68% of Democrats were concerned that someone in their family could get COVID-19 whereas only 40% of Republicans felt the same. And that was coming from, on the one hand, the mainstream media, places like the New York Times, were very, very concerned, or Vox, were very, very concerned about what was happening in coronavirus. But if you were watching Donald Trump's statements, he was downplaying it. Fox News had people like Trish Reagan on Fox Business say that this is just another attempt to impeach the president. But I think that's going to change. One thing about polarization and the way in which we view the world very differently through the lens of our political identities is that that works best when you're dealing with an abstraction of the world. But when you're dealing with the reality of the world, the stock market is actually collapsing. Your 401k is actually emptying. The people in your life, in your family are actually actually getting sick and potentially very seriously so soon enough you have to deal with the world as it is so over time i expect there to be less polarization in the direct understanding of the threat coronavirus presents 
But that would imply that polarization is something which can be suspended if the circumstances around are drastic enough. We might have thought that was the case, for instance, in wartime when people of vastly different political persuasions pulled together against the Nazi threat in Europe and beyond. Do you see coronavirus as having that sort of impact of suspending some of the polarization we're going to come on and talk about that you've been looking at in your book? I absolutely do. So something that I talked about in a lot of the media appearances on the book is that more than I think there are solutions to polarization, I think that what will happen is the situation will change. And when I think about ways the situation could change, I always had this list. And, and I would always say that one of the ways I would not like to see a change, but I could imagine it happening, is a war. If we were at war with China in 10 years, I think that the red-blue divide in America would be substantially weakened and you would have this much more distinct American identity. I think there's an argument to be made that part of the more intense national identity and the less polarized politics we had in mid-20th century America had to do with first world wars and then the, the external threat of the Soviet Union. Now, I did not anticipate a global pandemic being the pressure there, but I very much could see it becoming so. I mean, look, if we are going to be in a situation where for 12 months, for 18 months, people are constantly coming in and out of shelter and place orders, where they are having to suspend constantly their normal, both economic and social activity, where there's a tremendous recession. I've seen estimates that unemployment could go up to 10%. I've seen even estimates that could go up to 20%. Now, I, I am not, I do not want to endorse those estimates. I don't think we have enough economic data to know that yet. But having a profound external enemy that dramatically changes the fabric of everyday life is something that is going to overwhelm a lot of day-to-day -day politics. And even in Washington right now, you're seeing that this early. Uh, there is a lot of coming together around a very big stimulus package. You're seeing Republicans like Mitt Romney proposing direct cash grants. So at this moment, and we will see how long it lasts for, but at this moment, there is a cessation of some normal partisan activity because the emergency is creating an identity that is stronger than red-blue. And that identity is, I am a person terrified that I or somebody in my family is going to get coronavirus or lose our jobs or lose our businesses because of it. Do you think that the economic situation and the devastation really to a lot of people's livelihoods being caused by coronavirus will be able to help people reach across that divide? I feel like saying, for me, it feels like early days. I think that you're right to say it is early days. My impression of this, and this is somewhat basing off of the experience of covering the Washington response to the 2008 and 2009 financial crisis, is that you have a fair amount of bipartisanship in the immediate collapsing emergency. But then as you get more into a new normal, even a quite bad new normal, partisan dimensions reassert themselves. So if you think back to 2008, 2009, you had a fair amount of bipartisanship around the TARP proposal. It obviously failed in its first vote, but it came back and it was passed in a very bipartisan way. Some of the initial stimulus bills were quite bipartisan. Even the first Obama stimulus did get three Republican votes in the Senate, though that had already become that quickly a much more partisan vote. I will say it is my impression, having watched these things play out a number of times, that Democrats do tend to be more willing to reach across the aisle in the minority on these things than Republicans have traditionally. So one thing that is going to be interesting is if we have an election, first, I think the election itself will reassert some of these dynamics over time. But if Joe Biden is president a year from now or whenever it might be, whether he would get the same amount of cooperation from Republicans in the context of a continuing bad economy that Republicans are currently getting from Democrats is a very open question.
Let me turn to your thesis, really, and to your broader view of polarisation. You decided, obviously, that you wanted to do a deeper piece of work about this. You've spoken about it a lot on your podcast. You've written about it, but you've you've really taken a deep dive into what you think it is in America. So can you define it for us? Do we all mean the same thing when we say polarisation is happening and it's a bad thing? No, polarization is a very ill-defined concept in political life. And so one of the important things really is to define it clearly. So polarization simply means something. And you have to define what that something is, is clustering around two poles. That something can be party affiliation. That something can be ideology. That something can be behavior. That something can be really anything, right? It can be sports teams, right? Sports teams are very polarized around two teams. And so one thing that often happens in the national conversation is polarization becomes a synonym for bitter, for divisive, for angry, for extreme. And it's none of those things. In 20th century American politics, we had unbelievably bitter divides, but American politics was not polarized. So you think about the civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, the anti-war movement. But during that period, things like attitudes on racial equality or on the war itself were pretty evenly split between Republicans and Democrats. So when those bills came to the floor in Congress, they weren't polarized politically, even if the country is very divided. What has happened now and what I mean when I talk about polarization is that our parties have in America, our parties, the Democratic and Republican parties have sorted by ideology, which did not used to be the case. Used to have a lot of liberal Republicans and very conservative Democrats. And on top of that, they've sorted by demographics and some attached identities. So the Democratic parties a much more diverse party racially. It's a much more secular party. It's a much more urban party, the Republican Party, the reverse on all those dimensions. And so it is not just that we have deep disagreements in American life. We have always had those. It's very important to keep that in mind. And I would say at many points in our history, they've been much deeper and much more fundamental than they are right now. What is different now is that they are very cleanly sorted by party. And so that means when they come into the political system, as opposed to political system, in some cases, suppressing them because it doesn't want the disagreement or finding a way to compromise through them. Outside of emergency moments like this one, that tends to make it so the political system escalates conflict, escalates disagreement on these issues, and cannot come to the sort of bipartisan uh, levels of consensus that in the American political system, you need to get anything done. If we look at the impact of Donald Trump, often seen as the great polarizer, the, the sort of polarizing Shrek, if you like, is he a symptom or a cause of the kind of polarization that you describe as being different from what you might have seen when people simply had strong views, pro and con things, but they were more or less, not always, but more or less evenly distributed, regardless of a core identity around a polarizing personal issue. I 100% believe Donald Trump to be a symptom, not a cause. And there are a couple things to say about that. One is that Donald Trump himself is interestingly not polarizing in some ways that I think people might expect him to be. So if you just put him in a room on his own and ask him questions, you will not get very well-sorted disagreement. Certainly you would not have gotten it a couple of years ago when he ran for office as a Republican. He said he liked Planned Parenthood, that he liked Medicare, they didn't want to cut entitlements, that he wanted to raise taxes on people like himself, they wanted to give everybody health care. Whether or not he meant it, he certainly did not govern against some of those early promises. It's very clear that what Donald Trump represented is something you see a lot among just people, which is that his internal political opinions were not well sorted. He was a Republican in the sense that he didn't really like the Democrats, and he was a Republican in the sense that he felt very strongly about what we might call sort of cultural dimensions of political conflict, so things like immigration and race. He felt very strongly about how the country was changing, but he was much more mixed on economics. Now, the particular way in which I think Donald Trump is a symptom of polarization and then also is an accelerant to polarization is in the first case, 
He is somebody who, at another point in American politics, if he'd been nominated by a party, he might have lost a lot of votes to the other party, the way Barry Goldwater did to Democrats or George McGovern did to Republicans. That's why those two candidates got wiped out. But Donald Trump is running in such a polarized time that even if a lot of Republicans didn't like him, and a lot of Republicans in 2016 did not, they couldn't imagine voting for the Democrats because the Democrats were so different than them. It was such a different agenda. You might not like Donald Trump, but you couldn't possibly let Hillary Clinton become the president. So that's actually a very important distinction. It keeps things locked in place in a way they wouldn't be otherwise. But when you look at the history of polarization in America, when would you say it starts to become a problem as opposed to, if you like, simply a sort of analysis in which you're looking at blocks of voters and the fact that maybe there have been always, if you look at Dixiecrats, Democrats on one side, liberal and conservative Republicans on another. And that's been pretty much seen as as a norm and within the democratic norm. So when does it start to become a headache? This is a very important point. One of the arguments I make in my book is that polarization is not itself a bad thing. It depends on the political system it's in and the context in which you're dealing with it. Polarization is simply disagreement, and you actually often want political parties to represent clear disagreements. The problem in the American political system particularly is we have a system in which you need very high levels of consensus and compromise in order for anything at all to operate. And so it's not like that in a lot of systems. In the British system, which is, has all many imperfections and is by no means perfect, but winning an election in the British system it more or less tends to mean you have some level of governing authority. In America, it often doesn't mean that at all. You can win an election and you're Barack Obama and the Senate Majority Leader is Mitch McConnell, and you can't get anything done in Congress whatsoever. Or you can be Donald Trump right now with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And so one of the particular problems of polarization in American politics is we have a system that was not built for political parties and very much was not built for political parties with sharp levels of disagreement. And so when you layer that onto a system that in its most fundamental construction tries to develop very high levels of pluralistic consensus, but then you create a zero some competition between two parties where it becomes actually irrational politically in normal circumstances for them to work together, you create a system where nothing can get done. So, I mean, then you can have an argument over, do you prefer the problems of paralysis in a system to the problems of governance in a system, right? I know libertarians who will say, you know what, it's actually not so bad at a moment when the American political system is very divided that you can't do anything. Not being able to do anything means government doesn't get bigger. It means we don't do bad things. That is not my argument, but I understand how you can make it. But but that is basically the situation in polarization. My problem with polarization is not that people disagree. It's that it has made effective governance in American politics impossible. And in making that impossible, it's also made it very hard for the American voter to hold its politicians accountable. Because unlike in other countries where you elect people, they do things, and then you decide, did you like what they did or do you not like it? In the American system, you elect people, they don't get anything they promised you done done. And then there's a long argument over who's to blame for something not happening happening. Let's look a bit perhaps beyond Washington and beyond that view of polarization as it, it attaches to bipartisanship and getting stuff done on the hill, if you like. You said earlier that you thought that if Joe Biden were to win, for example, or at least a, a Democratic advance, Democratic Party advance, might open up that road back to a more bipartisan approach. And yet, if you look at identity politics, if you look at I'm just going to sort of not put too fine a point on it, the self-righteousness of many left liberals about their own views and their view that they are more virtuous than those who hold different views. 
which comes across to a lot of voters uh, as being high-handed, condescending, probably drives this cycle that, that you describe. <laughs> Why would you think that without them moving as well, anything could change? It's not my view that either party is going to get us out of polarization. I don't think Joe Biden, despite being in his own head, a less polarizing player and somebody who would like to, you know, as he puts it, restore the soul of American politics. I don't think Joe Biden is going to offer a path out of polarization. I think that under extreme emergency conditions. The question of which parties are able to cooperate and under which conditions is an important one because we are currently under extreme emergency conditions. I think it is a really important part of the book to say that the conditions of polarization are structural. They attach to politicians of both parties. Bill Clinton was the most polarizing president on record before George W. Bush was, who then got the crown taken from him by Barack Obama, who then got it taken by Donald Trump. So this is attaching no matter who is in office, no matter which party is in power, and in very different agenda and political context. So I think it is really, really important to say that this is bigger than any one politician's ability to solve. I recognize that what you're saying is that isn't the left full of annoying social justice warriors and they're creating polarization too. And obviously on some level that's true, right? All sides are creating polarization at all times. I think there's good reason to believe that in terms of congressional behavior, there's a lot of research on asymmetric polarization. In terms of congressional behavior and high-level party behavior, there is a reason the Republican Party has become more conflict-oriented in Congress than the Democratic Party, and that's just functionally because the Republican Party is able to win with a minority of votes. If Democrats could win with 46.1% of the two-party vote, and hold the Senate despite getting fewer votes than the other party, they would be able to pursue a pure ideological agenda. But instead, and you see this playing out in the Democratic primary right now, they are going to nominate Joe Biden, who's one of their more generic and compromise-oriented candidates, as opposed to someone even like Bernie Sanders, who was doing quite well, but was very much somebody whose view was like, we are going to raise a level of conflict, make it class conflict as opposed to something else, and try to win that way. So the Democratic Party, by virtue of having to compete in more places and sort of win 52 or 53% of the two-party vote to win power just operates under somewhat different incentives, and it loses more often when it pursues a very polarizing strategy. How does it then have an echo in the way that we argue our own cases when we say that I'm strongly advocating something that's so obviously right, be it Black Lives Matter, be it here in the the UK, whatever one's view is on Brexit, be it pro-Trump, anti-Trump, that somehow people are feeding into a polarisation, although they believe that their own arguments are sound and that their own arguments are virtuous. This gets to a difficult question between the relationship between mass public polarization and even if there is as much mass polarization as we think and elite level polarization. So a lot of the things that we're talking about are Political elites defined quite broadly, not just here members of Congress, but members of the media, people with a lot of Twitter followers, and particularly if they are trying to raise money or trying to raise audience or trying to get more people to follow them on some platform, there is a heavy level of incentive right now to take very strident positions, to you know dunk on the other side on social media. And that does lead to more polarization. There's absolutely no doubt about it. One of the things though is that the mass public is actually not that polarized, not in the sense that we use that term specifically, which is like they are not that well sorted in terms of their opinions between the two parties. Most people are mixed. And that doesn't mean, by the way, they don't have 
have strong or strident opinions. If you've ever met another human being, you'll know that oftentimes people do, but it's that their opinions, if you look at them, they don't line up the way they do in politics. So in politics, let's say in America here, if you are in Congress and you are talking to somebody who believes we should cut taxes, you can be almost sure that person is also pro-life. If you are talking to somebody who does not believe global warming is a thing, you are also talking to somebody who believes that we should deregulate more economic activity in this country, right? Things go together in different ways that are very clear. In the public, it's not that way. In the public, you have a lot of people who on the one hand believe that we should build a border wall, but also have single payer health care. In the public, you have people who don't believe in global warming, but want gay marriage to be legal. And so there's a big difference between what the elites are doing and what the public is doing. But in the end, the public ends up having their choices structured for them by the elites. And so if the elites are polarizing the entire choice system, then the public ends up making much more polarized choices because they don't have another option in their political system. But where then do we end up with something like Hispanic voters? This counterexample, you might say, to the idea that voters are divided by racial identity, a subject now perhaps more discussed in American politics than certainly since I started covering races back in the early 90s for the White House. So if you take someone like President Trump, who angers so many people with his immigration policies, but still has around 30% of Hispanic voters approving of him, does that show that there is more of a warp and weft to these views than we sometimes reflect? So there always is more of a warp and weft to these views than we sometimes reflect. And one thing about the Hispanic grouping is that that's a very diverse grouping, right? That is including Cubans, Puerto Ricans, people who have come here from Mexico or El Salvador. And so there's a lot happening in that Hispanic group. So, I mean, you see this playing out in the Democratic primary right now where Bernie Sanders is doing very well among Hispanics in the West because that tends to be immigrants from Central America. And he's doing very poorly. He just got destroyed in the Florida primary in part because he does very badly among, say, Cuban immigrants and so or, or second generation Cuban Americans. And so there's a lot happening in all of these groups. Uh, but one thing that is going on, I do think it is important to say this, and it's a reason why you see so much more discussion of race in this country, is that we are in a period of immense demographic transition as we become a country where uh, whites are not a majority of the population. We expect that to happen around 2045, let's say, according to the demographers. And so that's also happening on religion, where we're becoming much more secular. It's also happening on foreign native-born split, not that we're going to have a majority of the country be foreign-born, but we have gone from about 4% of the country being foreign-born in 1975 to about 14% now, and it's going to hit a record in a couple of years. And so people are feeling a lot of demographic change around them, and that's putting a lot of weight on this axis of conflict around social issues. I think if you look at what's happening in American politics, and Donald Trump very much reflects this, but look at Tucker Carlson on Fox News. There are a lot of people on the right who, what they are trying to do is say, for a long time, the conservative movement in this country has been about economics. It has not been willing to compromise on economics, but it has been willing to compromise on things like immigration, right? George W. Bush was, you know, very moderate on immigration. And Marco Rubio was very moderate on immigration at least a couple of years ago. And they're saying we need to reverse that. What we want to do is keep the country's demographics from changing too much. We want to build a wall. We want more intense immigration enforcement. You know, we want more intense protections for Christians in the public sphere. But we don't need to be so intense on economics. We should compromise more more often there. So I think a lot of conflict in this country as the demographics change is moving to this social cultural axis of who is actually holding power. 
Now, what about the media here? There's another group of people who hold power in society. We're both in it in, in different ways. What have you reflected about your own role as someone who's very prominent in the media? For instance, the, the role of, of Vox, you know, where you've, you, you've worked for, for some time. It's a liberal-leaning news platform, liberal in the American sense, left-leaning in the European sense. It has opinions. Very few of them are conservative, or you might gainsay me and say that you've uh, you've just hired a couple but but that is perhaps a perception that I certainly note since I've worked in the media for 30 years that it is harder to walk into places and hear a robust sort of good tempered argument it feels almost like we're having the arguments in different places in different platforms in different publications does that worry you and do you have a role to play there Absolutely. And so I would say good tempered argument is something I would question. I think there are actually a lot of places that have very good tempered arguments, but there's no doubt that the media is splitting much more by ideology, by opinion, by all kinds of different things. And I have a whole chapter about this in the book. This is very much a media economics and technology question. Part of the book is about what happens once you have a more polarized public, what kind of feedback loops does this set off with different institutions? And with the media, the feedback loop in particular is the public is more polarized and political elites are more polarized. And so the media is choice oriented now. It's not like it was 30 years ago where it's, you know, you had local newspaper monopolies and so on. We're all competing with each other for audience. That audience, the audience that chooses to read political media are people who are interested in politics. People interested in politics are polarized to one degree or another. And so the natural business strategy to pick them up, whether or not it's what you realize you're doing, it is what ends up getting rewarded by the market, is to become more polarized to appeal to them. When you become more polarized to appeal to them, you polarize them more. But I have the experience all the time. I will bring people on to my show, uh, The Ezra Klein Show, who very much disagree with me or have been criticizing me on something. And then when we're sitting down there, it's a very different conversation. So it isn't just that there's a difference between the people on Twitter and the people off of it, though there actually is. It's also that when you are on Twitter or in some of these contexts, you are a more conflict-oriented version of yourself than you are in other contexts. And so part of what I think is a little bit constructive and even encouraging here is there isn't one version of us. There are many versions of us that come out depending on the context in which we're operating. If our incentive system is to get likes from people who already agree with us, we're going to communicate in one way. If we're sitting down socially with somebody we disagree with and trying to find in the way that human beings are naturally tuned to do at least some amount of common ground, we're going to talk in a different way. I think it's why a lot of people in the media have moved to enjoying podcasts. And so it's worth recognizing we are not fixed creatures. We are creatures who depend on context. And that means trying to understand the systems in which we operate and trying then to alter them so that the incentives in which we operate are bringing out a better and better version of ourselves and our country. When was the last time you changed your own mind on a deeply held conviction or just felt that ground move in terms of the way that you've assessed an argument? I mean, there are a bunch of things in this book that have that dimension to them. So one is I've become much more pessimistic about the possibility of persuasion, which was a very important thing and remains an important thing to me in my career. But the research in this book, which is very grim on some of these dimensions, I think really calls that into question. But I'll say I, probably that, the That's not exactly a happy I've, example, is it? No, it's not. I'm not I'm not here to give happy examples. I'm not here to give people easy solutions. I think they're very hard. Societies are very hard. They're complicated. There are a lot of feedback loops. But I'll say another one because I, I do like to use this example. Over the past five years, I became a vegan from being somebody who before that would Instagram pictures of my like fancy hamburgers. And I've become very convinced that the structure of factory farming and animal suffering is immoral. And that's been a very hard thing to move over to. And it's been very radicalizing. So I do think you can change your minds. Um, and I do think it's important for us all to 
do so. But in order, one thing I've learned both on the show, both looking at this research, both in my own life, is in order to do that, it needs to come when you feel pretty safe, right? I changed my mind on that in part because my wife went vegan before I did, right? And she was somebody who I didn't have walls up against. I didn't feel defensive when she talked to me about it. And similarly on the podcast, it's a space where people can feel less defensive. And so there's more space to explore and to open people's minds. If you want to persuade people and you want to get people to change their minds, which is really hard to do, the first step is making them feel safe. So like, don't ask yourself first how good your argument is. Um, It probably is not that good anyway, but don't ask yourself first there. Ask yourself first how you're making the people in front of you feel. If changing our minds is a good thing and we want people to do more of it, then we have to be much more attentive to their emotional receptivity and intellectual receptivity than we often are. We often argue to make ourselves feel right, not to make other people feel okay and accepted if they begin to suspect maybe they're wrong. Ezra Klein, thank you very much for your conversation today. Thank you for having me. And we'd love to know what you think, what you think the solution might look like to America's polarization problem. And when did you last change your mind and about what? Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And for more on American politics and the coronavirus, do subscribe to us, economist.com slash radio offer. You will find everything there that you need to know on the science of coronavirus. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.